did finish that last time, but I want to continue this on into first and second since we're right here and they're very short and this might be one of those rare days when I don't get through not only through two chapters but two books of the Bible in one day. Uh, we'll see how that goes. It might be a short sermon for a change. But uh, John wrote three different letters, obviously, which God felt needed to be included in Scripture. The first one being, uh, as we break it down, at least five chapters and quite a bit longer message with a more full explanation of what the love of God is and how to define it through his commandments. Uh, so his instructions, his way of life, and his rule, John lays out very well in those five chapters of First John that we have as a gospel today, and cautioned us to be careful. Now remember, as we look back at First John and look forward to second and third, that John was living toward the end of the first century, that the church had been initiated at Pentecost and probably 31 A.D., and about 70 years later, it was almost dead. Uh, There had been a great falling away. Many people had departed from the truth. So he was the last apostle still alive, uh, the only one, in fact, that was not martyred ultimately and died a natural death. So he had looked at destruction and devastation in the church over the period of time that he had been there, almost 70 years at this point. So he was apparently in his high 90s at this time when he wrote these Gospels. So he was looking back at what had been and what the real truth was and also considering it in the face of what had happened to the church. And we are in essentially the same position now in this end time church. It has lasted or did last about 70 years Uh, and began to fall apart. And we're looking at essentially the same thing that John was looking at then. Uh, People falling left and right all around him on a spiritual level, and also those who had been called earlier in life were physically dying out. And we see the same thing today. Uh, God does say there in Haggai, and the example is there in Ezra as well, that there will be old men remaining who saw the former temple and its height of spirituality, whatever that may have been and whenever it happened, I think in the 50s and up to mid-60s, and then it began to decline. But uh, there are still people around who observe that through adult eyes, and they will still be around to compare when God puts it back together here again shortly. Under this time, not Herbert Armstrong, but under two men, uh, the leader of whom will be Zerubbabel, so it'll still be one leader in charge, as has always been the case in God's uh, realm. Whether it's spiritually in heaven, uh, there is only one who is the ultimate authority, and that is the Father. And Christ is subject in that sense to him. Even though they are equal in terms of being eternal and glorified, the Father will always take precedence over the Son. 
And that's the way God has always done it, both in heaven and how he has instituted things on earth. And it will be the same in the latter temple as well. Even though there be two, one will be in charge over the other. I think that is very clear at the end of Haggai and in Zechariah 4 as well. Whereas Zerubbabel is the one who has made the signet above all at the end of Haggai. So, we are in the same circumstance that they were then. So there is much for us to take from what John gave kind of as a parting shot of the end time or or the early church in that day and the end of it as it began to fall apart and then just disappeared. Uh, You didn't hear much about the truth after 100 A.D. Uh, The church uh, still had those who followed God's ways, I am sure, because God said it wouldn't die out. Uh, And yet there was not much there, not enough that it was to be recognized, or whatever did remain, uh, other religions tried to hide and keep from being seen. And what record there is through the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and all that time from 100 A.D. down until uh, the end, really, uh, is hard to trace. You can find a little record here and there of people who were still keeping the Sabbath and some of God's truths. But they were rare and hard to find. And there may have been more of them, really, than we know about, but history has not been kind to them and has tried to hide their existence from us. So, here we are today. So, realize the audience that John was writing these three letters to. Uh, He opened the first one concerning Christ... And that is the initial address there. Uh, But he refers to my little children in uh, chapter 2, showing that he's speaking to the church, who are the children of God, and in one sense were uh, his children in terms of age, because he was well into his 90s, and probably most everyone in the church was younger than he was at that point. Here, he says the elder, again showing or referring to his age, Unto the elect lady and her children. Here again surfaces the church as a female, as a lady, as a woman. We see that all through the prophecies uh, about either a virgin or a woman or female in that sense uh, as the potential bride of Christ. So he refers to her here. Now he does not say a chaste virgin. Uh, He refers to her at this point as a lady. In other words, he had seen about 70 years of the church from its infancy on that day in Acts when the Holy Spirit first came and had seen the church grow up and in one sense grow old and was withering and dying. So here he refers to her as the elect lady, the chosen one. Proverbs 31 shows that he is going to choose again uh, 
this time a younger lady, to lead uh, here in the end time. You can go to Micah 4 and other places, and he uses that analogy over and over again. So again, we are here with the first temple, the first church, the former temple, as Haggai puts it, almost gone, having reached a certain level of maturity and then aging and dying. But he is going to raise up something fresh and new and bring people there to form the latter temple. So again, he refers to it as a young lady or a virgin or uh, new in that sense. So when he refers to it as lady here, uh, then that fits in very well with us because we're growing old in terms of this experience with the truth here in the end time. So to the elect lady, the one God shows but uh, is not or did not live up to really what she should, and therefore has to be replaced, and the rebuilding of the spiritual temple has to occur. Perhaps the physical as well, but certainly, above everything, the spiritual. So he writes it not only to perhaps the leadership that might remain, but her children, those people who were in the church at that time. Whom I love in the truth. Now, God loves all humanity and will ultimately give all humanity a chance at salvation. Whether it was people who lived in the past and died without knowing the true God, and they'll be resurrected and given that chance later, the great white throne judgment, or what. But it is the truth that John loved. And he had a special godly love for those who were in the truth. In other words, in a larger sense, all humanity is a brotherhood or a sisterhood in God because we're all part of the creation of God. But there is a closer relationship between those who have the truth. The truth brings us together. Like belief, commonality in doctrine brings us together. And when you have divergence in doctrine and belief, then you have separation. Or, when you have people who are not living up to true doctrine and the truth, then they begin to have difficulties with one another, and you have a divergence or a scattering. And those are the keys to what has happened in the church in this age. Just as it was then. So he makes that point right off the bat. Those whom I love in the truth. Only those who had the truth were being addressed here. The elect lady, her children, who have the truth. Now that doesn't mean that somebody out in the world can't get something of value out of this. But it is written specifically to those who have the truth because it means more to them. It has more effect on them. They're the ones who are at this time having their one opportunity at salvation. So they need to be addressed first. And even here in the end time, we find the same scenario. The God tells even the two witnesses as they begin to come onto the scene at some point that they are to leave out the court of the Gentiles and only deal with the altar, the ministry, and them that worship there, the membership of the church. 
that they're to leave out the world, that they are not to be preaching and proselyting and taking the gospel around the world as a witness at that time. Now, it's very clear through Scripture that the original apostles were told to go and preach the gospel to the whole world. And that has been a purpose of the church, of the truth, ever since, but in a very limited way. And what we have to understand is that God temporarily suspends that commission because of our lack of spirituality, because of our lack of leadership. He says they'll have no sons among them there in Isaiah 52, I think it is, maybe 51, to lead, and that our king is dead and our counselors perished, Micah 4. And there are other scriptures which indicate that. So he temporarily suspends that commission and tells us we need to get ourselves straightened out before we even qualify to go to the world. And Herbert Armstrong, on some level, understood that. Because he did say his work, which he assumed was to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end would come, but it didn't turn out that way. He did preach to a great part of the world, but it was a calling work. It was not an end-time final warning, and the end did not come when he finished. But however he understood his commission, he said it was done. Now get the church ready was his instruction to the ministry. And that really was a passing of the baton to a different era, a different time, a different way of going about things. It would fall upon the two witnesses later to go to the world as a witness, and then the end would come, because the end comes three days after they die in the streets of Jerusalem. So they're obviously the ones that complete that. Meanwhile, if he tells the two witnesses not to even go to the world, but to deal with the church... And Zechariah 4 underlines that because it does talk about how they will be giving oil to all seven churches which remain, or all seven attitudes which remain in the church, essentially, of Revelation 2 and 3. And that they will be giving out the truth, the spirit, the oil to the church, not to the world. Now, later on, once... The spiritual temple has been put back together and has a greater spiritual uh, impact and standing with God. Then he opens the doors to preach the gospel to the world yet again. And that is why, meantime, no one who tries is going to have any major level of success at it. Even if they spend the money and put forth the effort, the fruits will be very, very little, tiny and dried up, and only be a few people. So God is not blessing that type of activity in any branch or any daughter of the church today. Much as they might try to brag about it, much as they might try to show how many broadcasts they're on and how many booklets and all this stuff that they advertise, much as they try to show how that is important, it isn't. 
And the fruit that is being produced is minuscule at best. And once, and sometimes one will rise up and say, we're the big it, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and it doesn't happen. They don't get the Scriptures. They don't understand the flow of prophecy in the end time. So it's easy to be deceived by going on what Herbert Armstrong went on, who had a different calling than that which is just ahead. So we are dealing today with the same situation that John was dealing with then. Not much could be done. The church had fallen away, and he was one old man trying to write to the few people that were left. So, perhaps it was cherishing them in one sense that he addressed it in the way he did. The elect lady, the older woman, and the children that are still alive of her, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth. And those may have included some who knew the truth but were no longer adhering to it in the way that they should have been, but they still had a certain respect for the truth. He puts that in a sense, past tense, those who have known the truth. Some still followed it, some had known it, but for whatever reason were not really following it, perhaps. For the truth's sake, which dwells in us, and shall be with us forever. Now it was in danger of dying out, but he's saying there will be some, there will be a few, who stick to it forevermore. It'll be with us forever. And I think we can say the same today, that though many have fallen away, have become spiritual... Cali- ca- uh, <laughs> the word left me in mid-word almost in my mind. Casualties is what I was trying to say. There still are going to be some who do not become casualties. And I think that those scriptures, all those prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about over 90% not being part anymore are true of the church and will be shortly of the nation. That's how we understand the prophecies, both on a spiritual and a physical level. But that does not mean that it will die out. It will be here. And Christ said he will return while this generation yet survives. Now, I think even in saying that, he's saying that it's going to get down to the point, like Haggai does, that there are only a few old people left who truly remember what was back in the 50s and 60s. Most will die out. But this generation will not die before he returns, he says. has to be referring to this generation that is here when his return is imminent. It couldn't be referring to a generation six back. They're all dead. Couldn't have been referring to the generation that Matthew was in, because they're all dead. So he has to be referring to the generation that is called and is living in the church at the end time, and they will not die out until Christ returns. So it will be with us forever. He even says, 
that except it be for the elect's sake, no flesh would be saved alive. And that's in the same context as old people being around who knew the truth before it fell apart. Grace be with you. Mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel as we call him today, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. What about the Trinitarians? Why wasn't the Holy Spirit mentioned here? Simply not a being. The Father and the Son are the beings. The Spirit is just their power uh, throughout the universe. There are so many, many places only the Father and Son are mentioned that the Holy Spirit was an equal being, a trinity, truly. Uh, boy, would not the Holy Spirit be upset. Anyway, he says, Mercy and peace be to you in truth and love. You cannot have the love of God without the truth of God. And as he has said throughout, if you don't keep the commandments of God, uh, then you don't have the love of God. So it has to be truth in commandment keeping that produces the love of God in a human being. And that is very rare on the earth today. Do we grasp, do we understand, that the world would be a better place today if there were no humans. It would be a more peaceful place. Now God understood that. The universe would be a more peaceful place if Satan and his demons were not in it and on the loose. Now it is fairly apparent that God will not take everlasting life from Satan and the demons, but they will be chained in darkness forever, so that they will not be loose in the universe and spreading negativity, bad attitudes, hatred, and disobedience to God. That will have to be stopped. Now, human nature being evil as it is, and we discussed that and gave quite a few scriptures, I think, last week or the week before about it. It creates evil. Now, we have to all understand when we begin to reach true repentance. As Herbert Armstrong put it, I am a burned-out hunk of junk. In other words, I am worthless. As Christ himself said, there is none good, no, not one. And he himself, as a human being, though he still had the nature of God to some degree, was a human being, capable of dying, who did die. He had no consciousness for three days. He was not hovering somewhere as God. He was dead. The Father was alone. during that time, except for angels and humans, but no other God being existed for three days. Christ said, 
in that, that his human nature was no good of and by itself. And unless he had, had he not been walking in the spirit from his father, he could not have survived on this earth without committing sin and dying. That's why he was made human, was to go through that. Now, the Father and the Son had a pretty good idea that they could pull this off or they would not have done it. So, in that sense, there was not a great deal of jeopardy because the Father was there to support the Son while he was human. But there are a lot of people who do not understand the nature of Christ and they are not willing to believe the Word of God as written. But he was tempted at all points like we are. And I keep getting arguments from people that while he couldn't have been like we are, he couldn't have had the same desires we have. He was God. He was made like as we are, or we don't have a Savior who can understand us. Now that is what the Bible clearly says. No equivocation, no bad translation. That's the way it was. Now, either believe the Bible or don't. You can have your own Protestant ideas of the nature of Christ if you want. And I can't change that. I can only tell you what the book says. And you can believe God's Word or not. But God came to the point where He said, It had become so wretched, so violent, so sinful that the world that God had created beautiful was in danger of utter destruction. And he was ready to move. I repent that I made man. And then he saw Noah and said, I think I'll save him for his sake because he is a righteous man. Doesn't even say his family was, but he had to preserve family in order to continue humans on the earth. So he made a decision to wipe out all but eight and start over almost from scratch with one righteous man and others then needed to propagate mankind again. Now we are reaching the point once again on the earth when what man is producing has become so evil, so rotten, that God says, unless he intervenes, no flesh would be saved alive. We have become that destructive to our own selves. Now, Satan has a great deal of influence over us, but just our nature in itself is not good. And I hope that we all comprehend and understand in our prayers what Paul did. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? And then he said, only Christ could. So we of ourselves are not good. And we of ourselves would destroy ourselves. So I have to, in my mind, get on my knees and say, Father, the world would be a better place if I did not exist. Because 
like all other human beings, by nature, without teaching, guidance, direction from somewhere, parents, society, or God himself through his spirit, what I do on the earth helps pollute it. Now, each one of us might do a certain amount of good, but we do a certain amount of evil. And mankind has gotten to the place where the preponderance of all thought and activity on earth is evil. And therefore, it would have to be destroyed to have peace in the universe. So what we are up against is that the earth would be destroyed except a few obey the elect's sake. Now, he wrote here to the elect lady, those who, whom God has called and has elected to survive and be kings and priests in the world tomorrow with Christ. Now, we are among the elect in that sense. But even like, let's say, in our own government, we elect a president He doesn't take office until later, just as we may have been chosen and elected by truth and following it by God to be a part of what is to come, we still not have been installed in office. We're kings and priests to be. We're the bride of Christ to be. And yet, Paul and others refer to the church as the bride, as the elect lady as John does, In other words, God speaks of those things that are not as if they already are. He has a very positive approach. And he knows he has the capacity to make this happen, even as he had the capacity to aid, abet, strengthen, and empower his son while he was human to live according to his ways in spite of the nature that he had. There's hope for us. Now, why does he tell us to pray that we be accounted worthy, not only to escape the physical things coming on the earth and be kept in a place of safety, physically protected, but even when Christ returns, he says one will be in a bed and taken, the other will not, one in a field and taken, the other not. So there is a certain worthiness we need to ask that we have. Now, will any of us be worthy? To be worthy, we would have to be perfect, would we not? We would have to have no sin on our record, and we would have to be perfect to be truly worthy to be God. So, we have to pray that we be accounted worthy because we fall short of the mark. And if we were to live forever short of the mark, then we would cause a certain amount of confusion, a certain amount of frustration, a certain level of disobedience and dysfunction in the family of God. So he has to account us worthy and then change us into spirit and take away our human nature that leads us to things that cause dysfunction on the earth. There has to be an incredible change. Now, we are working on that day by day. 
And he is pondering our heart to see if we will, if he will overlook what unworthiness we still have and account us worthy to be changed at Christ's return. Because none of us are going to reach the mark of perfection of God's character and the absolute keeping of his rules. None of us will get there. And that is why human beings will have a chance, most of them in a better circumstance than we do, to have the changes occur in their lives that are going to make them capable and in God's judgment worth saving. I today am not worth saving because I still create too much negativity on the face of the earth. And that has to go away. So either I have to change or ultimately be changed or I have to go away. That is why the penalty of sin is death. If we are not willing to follow God's rules, we will have to die. Now those whom he gives his truth and his spirit come to understand the rules, then they spend the rest of their life trying their very best to follow the rules. And then they need grace and mercy because they will fall short. Now, that doesn't mean we give up in despair and say, well, Lord, have mercy, I can't do it, and not try. We have to try to live the way of God the very best we can while we have opportunity. And then pray for mercy in our shortfall. That's what grace and mercy is all about. So he asks for grace and mercy and peace from God and His Son upon us, but in truth and love. Because without truth and the love of God, which is His commandments, there simply cannot be peace on earth. John recognized that greatly in that there was a great deal of infighting and problems and attitudes within the church at that time, just as we have it today. Going down to verse 4 now, I rejoiced greatly that I found of your children walking in truth. I have found of your children walking in truth. Most had departed. But in inspecting and analyzing and looking at what was left, he did find children still walking in truth. That is true today. Despite the falling away, despite adverse changes in doctrine and attitude, there are still about 10% of the church who are faithful or becoming more faithful if they were in the Laodicean condition, which we all were. And only God knows who they are. He says he will stir them to come to the latter temple. Man could never judge who is faithful and true in their heart before God and who is not. Only God can. 
and he will do the stirring. So John, looking at what was left, said, I found of your children, elect lady, some walking in truth. As we have received a commandment from the Father. Paul, I mean John here, spends a great deal of time in 1 John, and in 2nd and 3rd for that matter, discussing the commandments. Because that's what people had begun to depart from. We, as human beings, simply don't like God's rules. We want to do things our way to what we perceive would be benefit or pleasure or joy to us. And our human nature despises his rules, which produce an orderly, peaceful society. Now, we want everyone else to follow the rules, but we, with our puffed-up value of ourselves, want to be the exception to the rule. And there are none. If anyone could have been an exception to the rule... It would have been the Christ who had been God before he was made human. But he did not accept himself, did he? He kept the rules perfectly on this earth, even as he did before he got here. Even before God gave him human nature. You see, if he was not in any kind of jeopardy or temptation as a human being living on earth, if he was the same as he was when he was by his father's throne in heaven, what's the point? What's the point? There had to be a change in his status, a change in what he went through, a change in jeopardy, Otherwise, there was no point in him coming here. And he did die. He was human. Spirit cannot die. Christ died. So let's understand that he was given flesh. And with it, human nature through his mother Mary. He was engendered of the Holy Spirit from the Father, so from conception and birth and through his life, God's Spirit was with him and more carefully with him than any human who had ever lived. And he sought the Father carefully. Why did he go through such agony before he was crucified? Why? Did he sweat blood, if you will? Because he did not want to go through what he was about to go through and was going through shortly thereafter. It was a great temptation. That's why he's qualified to be our Savior. Is because as a human being, he did not give in even once. And he understands our frame and what we are. He has lived it. And he survived in spite of Satan, 
and all the people around him who hated him with a passion. What an incredible Savior we have. But if he had come down and had the nature only of God while he was a human, just a, just a God being who was manifested in flesh, then there was no temptation, there was no opportunity for sin, and nothing had changed. He was just manifested, looking like a human. That's not the way it was. He could not have died and the universe been devoid of his being for that three days. But he establishes here so much what the love of God is, and that is the keeping of the commandments. Walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech you, lady. So here is a plea, a beseeching. Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. I'm not giving you anything new here. Shall I say, old lady? <laughs> you who are about to die out. I'm not giving you anything new, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And he reiterates, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now, a beginning in Genesis was the first time they heard it. And they had heard it from Christ in a new beginning, but it was the same thing. Nothing had changed. It's just that mankind has declined from Adam and Eve on down to follow God's rules. That's why we've got the mess we've got on the earth today. So he says you've got to love one another, but it has got to be God's love. It can't just be emotion. God defines love by His rules, His commandments. If they are followed in the spirit and attitude in which they are intended, we will have peace and happiness and joy and all those fruits of the Spirit of God. They were failing at that. That's why He beseeched her, those who were left, to love each other according to God's definition of love. Then he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is coming, again, should be coming, in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now we went through, so I won't again what that means. We went to quite a few scriptures to show that he is living his life in and through us through the Spirit of God. And we have to walk as he walked and talk as he talked and think as he thought, bringing all thoughts into the captivity of Christ, which is an enormous challenge for a human being. So he is coming and dwelling in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we read. So there are it's not a matter of just accepting the name of Jesus. It's a matter of living the way he lived and submitting to his rules so that he may duplicate 
His life in us. In spite of us. So it's far more than a name. It's a way of life. Look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have worked, but that we receive a full reward. Let's not lose out after all the time we have spent at this. Remember Matthew 24? Those who endure to the end will be saved, not to those who give up in the meantime. Now, we can look around and get discouraged at lack of this and not enough of that or our own sins or somebody else's sins or sicknesses and illnesses and think that we are so much put upon and where is God? You know what? We haven't even begun to face the issues that Job faced. We have not begun to face the issues that Israel faced as slaves being beat nearly to death and to death and going through the first plagues of Egypt that they went through, or Mitzrayim. We have not come anywhere near what Christ went through or what his apostles went through, ultimately martyred. We can begin to feel sorry for ourselves and say, where is God? Well, we better say, where is God? And go find him, because Isaiah 7, 8, 8, I guess it is, tells us to wait and look for him. To wait for him and look for him. So it's not a matter of what's God doing for us right now, and it's easy for us to begin to look at it that way and get in a bad attitude. No, it's what are we doing for God? Are we living by his rules? Are we loving each other in the way that we should be? Or do we still have negativity and backbiting and gossip and frustrations and broken law and mistreatment of one another and all those things that we as human beings tend to do? Are we looking to his truth, to his rules? Are we working hard at getting ourselves in line with the life of Christ and his perfect example? We need to be busy overcoming. He says that's how we'll be a part of the kingdom of God. Not that we sit back and say, well, God, it's your fault I'm not perfect yet. It's your fault that we're not being healed yet. You know, he put those things off from us until he gets the right response from us. He scattered and is scattering yet today until we repent from the heart. The ball, in other words, is in our court. We do not need to be saying to God, why haven't you done thus and such? What's wrong that you're not paying attention to us? No, we're not paying enough attention to Him. That's the whole point. Laodiceanism is not according to God's way. Lukewarm, He spits out. Cold, He can deal with. Out. Hot, he can deal with. In. Laodiceanism is confusing and frustrating for God. So he says, The ball is in our court, not his. To turn to him with heart, mind, body, and soul. With all our heart. Then he says he will hear and answer.
So let's not allow ourselves to be, become frustrated, discouraged, angry, bitter, or whatever, or just not paying attention to God. Boy, right now is when we better be paying attention. Do you think that Job said, well, I guess God just forsook me. No, he says, I, wow, I'm one of God's people, and look what's happened to me. I guess I'd better change. <laughs> he finally got down to where he began to change his attitude. And when he changed his attitude and realized he wasn't so righteous, but God was, the light came on. Boom. Now I get it, Father. And God began to bless him again. Why do you think the book of Job's there? It's for us who don't focus enough on God. And when we start having trouble, then's when we need to really wake up and focus on God. So he's saying that. You better love each other and do it according to his rules because there are many out there who are falling away from that and they're going to lose out. Don't lose those things which we worked, but that we have a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. If they're not living according to the teachings, the writings, the truths of this book, then they are not of God. Most people today who claim to be Christians say that most of this book is done away with. Forget the Old Testament, keep Psalms and Proverbs because they have nice things. Throw away most of the New Testament because it says that we ought to keep the commandments. And then they have a few little verses they keep. So they're not teaching all the commandments of Christ. He said, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And they throw that out. Are they going to enter into life? Not unless they're converted. Not unless they come to understand and follow this book. That's the doctrine of Christ. He says, if you don't have those, you don't have God. You can't worship God in your own way. Put a different way. You have to worship Him His way. We like to give Him lip service and do things our way which means we're putting our desires and our wants ahead of what he says is the right way to do things, which creates an idol. And you can't serve two masters, so you can't serve your human nature and your fleshly desires ahead of God. Otherwise, you have made yourself above God, and that's what an idol is. And we are all idolaters because we put ourselves ahead of what God wants so very, very often. And we're not following the doctrine of Christ if we do that, because we're breaking the first commandment. First rule, put God above everything. Whatever he says do, do, because it's his rule. It's that simple. But our human nature fights that rule. We, some of us, have a creed, very common in our nation. Fool me once, it's on you. Fool me twice, it's on me. In other words, poo on you. Go away. I'll have nothing more to do with you because you tried for the second time to wrong me. 
Now, that's our human nature, is it not? I'm not going to let you fool me again. I'm not going to let you abuse me again. Misuse me again. I'll just withdraw from you. That's not the doctrine of Christ. That's not righteous. That's not spirituality. That's human nature who puts me first, and you second, and you do what I want the way I want it done, or out the door with you. What did Christ say? Peter thought he was a spiritual giant when he says, well, maybe I should forgive somebody seven times in a day. Christ said, you hadn't even begun, Peter. If somebody abuses you 490 times in one day, you are to be forgiving and not cast them aside or toss them away from you. That's a pretty high standard. That really means infinity. There's nobody that has done something wrong, evil, abusive, or anything of the kind to you that many times in one day. There may be some that are really pushing it. You know, they're up to three or four or five times in a day. <laughs> or maybe eight or ten or fifteen, I don't know. I'm just saying But how often should we forgive our brother and not take offense? Even if they literally, not just in our view, but literally abuse us in some fashion. We are not to take offense. Now, they're not supposed to do that. But if through human weakness they might, we cannot take offense. We're to forgive them. So we don't throw them away because they make a mistake or because they mistreat us in some way. What if somebody lied to you and said, I'm sorry? And they turn around 30 minutes later and lie to you again. I'm tired of that. Out with you. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You've lied to me twice today. Well, I guess you've got 488 times to go before you even have a numerical opportunity to do anything different. Now, you may begin to doubt their sincerity, and you may begin to doubt whether you can trust them or not. But in your heart and mind, you're supposed to forgive and not carry a grudge, not carry an attitude against them, not say anything bad about them, but to forgive them from the heart. That's the doctrine of Christ. And if we don't have that mindset, then we have not God. Now, I realize it's a matter of degrees and we have to work on it because none of us, by nature, has the mindset of God. When we're hurt, we either want to hurt back or take vengeance or deny or remove ourselves from. Now, there are other there are other things that have to be done. Sometimes you have to move a wolf from the flock lest he tear and kill. But in terms of our attitude one to the other, we have to come to love enough that we're willing to set aside and not let bother us 
the wrongdoings done by others. That's one thing to say, I forgive you, is quite another thing not to let it affect your attitude. And that's what we have to come to. If there come any to you, verse 10, and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, these words, this commandment keeping, this loving according to God's rules, if they have any other doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Do not allow within your house any teaching contrary to this. That means through written word, radio, television, computer, iPad, iPhone, individual, or anything else. Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons missionaries that come to your door. You're not to allow it in your house. Either your physical house or your spiritual temple, your head. Keep it out. And not only don't allow it in, but don't say, Bless you, brother, as they leave, either. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. If someone has different doctrine than we find in this book, and in what John is specifically writing here, the commandments are done away, we're not to allow them in our house, nor wish them well on the journey. Why would you wish false doctrine to be blessed? Now you might say, as a human being, I hope your life goes well. But don't attach God's speed to it. God bless you. Because if they're not thinking the way they ought to be thinking, God will not bless them, and you will be going contrary to the will of God. Now, when people in the church begin to promulgate false doctrine, we are not to listen to that, partake of that, or feel sorry for them in that, they are departing from the truth. And when they depart from the truth, we are not to have anything to do with their teaching, with their attitudes, or anything else. And in fact, if it gets bad enough, God says, disfellowship them. Do not have anything to do with them. Don't even eat with them. Don't fellowship with them, in other words. Because it can kill you. It becomes dangerous. So John realized there was false doctrine around. And he's warning people, be very, very careful. Because if you don't follow the true rules, you don't have God, and people that say they have God, and are beginning to change from this book... You stay away from that. And don't bless it or wish it well on its way. Having many things to write to you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. He had written a certain amount. 
at his age, he hoped to be there. Now, whether or not he ever did visit some of the people, various places that this went out to, is not recorded. But it was certainly his wish to be there in person and to help if he could and to uh, joy in that there are worse some still who were following the truth and to spend time with them if at all possible. Paul himself says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We need each other to encourage, strengthen, and help one another not be apart, not be somewhere else, because then we're being selfish if we do too much of that. We're not sharing and encouraging and strengthening one another. And for the most part, most of the time, we need to be doing that. Just as John wanted to be. That was his desire. But age and debility may have kept him from it. We don't know for sure. The children of your elect sister greet you. So he was with a congregation, and he wrote to other congregation, sister churches, and sent their greeting And then he uses a word which means, in English, Greek word which means, so be it. We use amen. Someone brought into question whether that is a proper pronunciation or not, and I haven't looked into it entirely. But uh, in English, it just means, so be it. Or this is my wish, this is my hope, this is the way things should be. Uh, Let's keep them that way. Did I brag about maybe going through two books at the beginning of this? I'm out of time, but that's okay. We covered a lot of ground that I think is important for us.